listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The vast Pacific holds many areas harboring marine life we know little about, as well as undersea mounts that have yet to be explored. That's why a coalition of cultural leaders and scientists sent a letter to the president asking that borders of a national marine monument in the remote Pacific be expanded. We talked to two coalition members. One is Lanai native and former lawmaker Solomon Kaho'ohalahala, who's known as Uncle Saul, who has a personal connection with those islands. Remember the documentary film Under a Jarvis Moon? Well, it shared this little-known story of a group of native Hawaiians who were sent to the remote islands of Jarvis, Holland, and Baker as the war in the Pacific broke out. Uncle Saul has a family tie, and we will get to that part of the story in a moment. But we also talked to Hoku Cody, a biologist who works with the Advisory Council for Papahanao Makuakea, the National Marine Monument of the Northwest Hawaiian Islands. It is adjacent to the remote atolls of Palmyra, Holland and Baker, and Kingman Reef that the coalition thinks should be protected. That's the area where we start our conversation to better understand why the coalition is stepping up to protect this deep sea ecosystem. Papahana Mokuakea is about two-thirds of the Hawaiian archipelago. It begins at a place called uh, Nihoa, and it goes all the way up to the last island or atoll called Holaniku, otherwise known as Kire Atoll. And we are a marine monument where cultural resources and natural resources are kind of protected and uh, managed as one in the same, and so therefore having uh, kind of enhanced protection it's a designated World Heritage Site. And so what we are asking is that the Pacific Remote Islands kind of be afforded a similar co-management approach, as well as through the renaming of the Marine Monument from Pacific Remote Islands into a name that'll be more kind of tied to the relationships in the Pacific and Pacific Island peoples and cultures, as well as we are supporting the idea of expanding the protection in Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument from uh, about 490,000 square miles to expand it to 685 square kilometers, which would make it the largest highly protected marine protected area in the world. And we are asking to do that around three of the last remaining islands that did not get those expansion protections. It would be Howland and Baker Island, Jarvis Island, Palmyra, and Cayman Reef. And the other, the other two that were expanded, Wake Island and Johnston Island. All of these islands are kind of south, southwest of Hawaii, kind of in more international waters that are closer to uh, Republic of the Marshall Islands. Um, it's kind of north of the territory of American Samoa and kind of slight, you know, and a little bit more east of those areas and so it kind of encompasses this really large area of the pacific kind of central pacific and 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 kind of up next to uh, these other pacific island nations and cultures and uncle saul uh jump in here i mean you have a a connection to these islands yes um at the time of i believe 1937 to 1942 there were groups of mostly native hawaiian men who were recruited on this mission to occupy uh, these islands, so Howland, Jarvis, and Baker, which they were left there to to do um, observations uh, on behalf of the United States. And and so my uncle, uh, Joseph Kelly'i Hananui, was one of the, the men that were uh, on Howland Island. And Howland Island, maybe, uh, maybe to bring me some familiarity to the listeners, was the island that was being uh, prepared for Amelia uh, Earhart's landing in her Pacific crossing and trying to get back to the, the, the continental U.S. So, so they were there preparing for her arrival when she crossed the Pacific. And then World War II broke out. And unfortunately, uh, my uncle and Richard Whaley were two of the gentlemen that were killed on Howland Island uh, in a bombing raid by the Japanese. So, you know, my mom didn't know where my uncle had gone. And she found this little article in the newspaper here on Monai. And then she said that uh, for me to look at it. And then when I looked at it, and I was like, I didn't know who it was referencing and who who these uh, gentlemen were. And, and then she finally says that Joseph Kali'ihananui is her brother. 
Mm. And they never knew where he had gone and what had happened to him. And uh, the article was now seeking to find uh, family members uh, for a disinternment, you know, to bring the remains uh, back from from Howland Island, of which they were left, and their buddies that survived actually buried them on Howland Island. And when everyone was finally, after the war, brought back to Hawaii safely, it was uh, the group of men that called themselves now Panalaao that asked, you know, the U.S. Uh, uh, military to go back to Howland and bring their two brothers home. So, and it was at that time that this little clipping was. Uh, was uh, what my mother was referring to. And so I think for me, having these gentlemen down there as Native Hawaiians uh, speaks a lot towards what they were involved with culturally. You know, they were chosen specifically because they were expected to be able to endure conditions on on islands. And, the, and they were culturally, I think they were all coming from practices that had been a part of their heritage here at home in Hawaii. So going to another island doesn't make it um, a strange place, but it's a familiar place in that their cultural practices are what they uh, are going to use. And, and their surviving there meant that they were culturally um, in tune to the, the environment. So, so moving forward, I think it would be good for us to be reminded that these are culturally attached to people who have been there and some of them have died there. And then the resources that they have relied on to for sustenance is what we are encouraging to happen moving forward. So I'd like to help to enhance that legacy of Panalao and that uh, personally of that of my uncle for their time to have helped the United States to have gained these areas of islands far from Hawaii to become part of the U.S. territory. So, so long story short, you know, that's, I think, a cultural connection and a personal connection. Well, Hoku, as far as the protection for these islands, uh, why not just make these remote islands part of Papahanaumokuakea? That's a great question. At the moment, it kind of already is its management structure, first and foremost. And secondly, probably equally or even more important, a lot of these islands within Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument have deep cultural ties to other Pacific Island nations as well. In fact, probably more than Hawaii, although Hawaii folks, due, due to our deep connection to the Pacific, we also have a, a relationship with these islands. And so I think for those reasons and, you know, just wanting to be inclusive of our Pacific Islander brothers and sisters across the Pacific, you know, we, we do feel that having a management structure that includes uh, their relationship and ongoing relationship would be really important. And as we've seen in Papahanaumokuakea, having an inclusive management structure only can only enhance and uh, it elevates the protections of a place for its longevity. We are hoping for a process to rename the Pacific Remote Islands, just in the same way that the Northwestern Hawaiian Islands got renamed to Papahanaumokuakea. We think that having a, a name that kind of solidifies or expresses a deeper relationship to the Pacific, broader Pacific, and not just Hawaiians, is really important for all of Pacific Island cultures to come together and recognize these islands as all of ours. And so I, I don't think that having it as a Hawaiian name would be as important as having our Pacific Island brothers and sisters to be able to give their thoughts and their relationships to be part of the, this name designation. And we just want to express our support for a process that does include those perspectives and those people and want to be able to offer what we've been able to experience and cultivate in Papahanaumokuakea, this co-management, you know, looking at culture and natural resources as one and the same. We want to be able to offer that to places that maybe do not have that kind of management structure and would absolutely benefit from, from something like that. What are the biggest threats for those islands that have not yet had the protections? Some of the threat here is that, you know, we talk about in our Hawaiian culture, the kumulipo and how all things are created and emerge from the deep seas. And um, in Papahanaumokuakea, it's been very clear that the deep seas surrounding Papahanaumokuakea have been recently uh, explored and found that endemism uh, is still there. So we have unique species of 
of animals that have never been uh, ever found before, and they have also documented that the deeper that uh, these exploration went, it became 100% endemic, you know. So when we look at the, the reflection of the Pacific remote islands, the understanding of the Kumulipo as a place of refuges, a place of creation, is no different. But Pacific remote islands have not uh, been explored, and there are, I think, several seamounts within the area of the Pacific remote islands that have yet to be uh, explored, but the expansion would, would encompass them and allow us to have better understanding and then bring the, the culture and the science together. And I think for us, that is an important part about um, what culture can do in terms of climate change in, in identifying and caring and observing for these kinds of resources and then um, allowing the science to with the technology that's available to to come and take a closer look because, you know, we understand it from our perspective of this unknown that comes from our understanding and in the Kumulipo and then the science brings uh, the potential to see and touch and then the unknown becomes known because we are combining that. And that's, I think, the strength of what we're trying to accomplish here and bring that kind of uh, collaboration to the forefront and know that moving forward in this time of climate change, that some of these resources that are endemic to these spaces may have very significant uses for the future. And also, um, I think very clear is that deep sea mining is a threat to our archipelago in Hawaii, as well as that in the Pacific Remote. And it's something that we're not real mild to, we're not familiar to, because we don't, we don't see the deep sea as a place that will have any uh, impact on us. But surely if the mining does occur, what it does, it dredges, and it's the column of ocean that will be made turbid or dirty or whatever from the dredging. And that column stays suspended for extreme periods of time. And the drift of that column may in fact now come into our islands without us knowing that. And that may have impacts far beyond anything that we understand. So so those are serious kinds of threats that I think we need to be a little bit more makala about, more cautious about. And so it's our islands here in Hawaii, as well as the Pacific remote islands, as well as Papahanaumokuwea. And so those are uh, the more serious kinds of concerns, as well as overfishing, but we know that the marine protected areas have helped to um, allow for the the fishing that's taking place uh, outside of those boundaries to, at least at this time, reach their quotas. So the protected areas are not diminishing the fishing catches, in fact. So, So hopefully that the expansion is going to allow for more of a sustained kind of fishing industry that currently does most of their fishing outside of the protected areas. One of the things that we've uh, come to understand because uh, work has been done in Palmyra and I think the Kingman Reef area is that we are now understanding that the deep sea provides a lot of the nutrients that are really necessary for the near shore and even the, the land. So the animals and the plants that are on these remote islands are resourcing their food that's coming from the deep seas and vice versa. Some of the nutrients that are running off from the the land into the reef um, um, are also feeding and supporting uh, the ocean environment. So this this connection of Mauka Makai, even though there's not mountains that we can talk about, is that land to sea connection is still very important uh, to keep the the ecosystems to be intact. And and we have never considered that the deep seas had any role to play in land. And and now we know a little bit more about that. So I, I think that's the other part that helps us to to make sure that we understand it clear more clearly and then we are moving to support it because it's an important part of that Mauka Makai land sea connection. That was former legislator Saul Ko'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o'o
Hoku Cody, a biologist who works with the Advisory Council of the National Marine Monument of Papahanaumokuakea. They were talking about why they believe the remote Pacific Island Marine Monument should be expanded. Today's quiz. Oh, sorry, where that's coming up. But uh, you know, we just want to remind you that you are listening to the conversation here on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your backyard quiz. Olana, o Maui, o Kaholabe, o Hawaii. We are asking you about a New Englander who came to Hawaii in the early 19th century and ended up leaving a lasting legacy. He became a close associate of Kamehameha I as the warrior chief was in the process of uniting the islands. The foreigner introduced the king to American weaponry and was given royal permission to use his American-made musket to shoot feral cattle on Hawaii Island. In 1815, this man married Chiefess Kipikane, the daughter of a high-ranking chief, and he went on to found one of the most powerful family dynasties in Hawaiian history. The family first settled uh, in a small farm in the Kohala district and built its fortune on the sale of salted beef to whaling vessels. Their ranch became the largest in Hawaii and remains so today. This morning, we're looking for the name of the family's founding father. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweetHawaii.com. all this week we've been focusing on green energy. We heard more about the push to encourage more people to get into electric vehicles. Today we hear from Blue Planet Foundation Executive Director Melissa Miyashiro about some of the legislation passed this session to get us closer to green energy goals by 2030 and 2050, which will be here before we know it. First is HB 1800. Um, And what this bill does is it provides an interim goal of 50% carbon emission reduction economy-wide by 2030. So we know that the state has a goal to be carbon negative by 2045. So this bill sets an interim target to be 50%, um, you know, in our carbon emissions reduction by by 2030. So it provides a little bit of a, uh, you know, a guidepost for where we need to be if we hope to to reach something like carbon negative by, by 2045. And it also funds a study to really look at what are the pathways to, to deep decarbonization. So getting really specific about what is it, it actually going to take to get us there. Uh, and then a second measure that we're excited about is HB 1801. And this is something that we've been working on with a, a number of allies and stakeholders over the years. Um, and this really calls on state government to lead by example by uh, implementing energy efficiency in state buildings. So state facilities are some of the largest electricity users in the state. Um, and it's, you know, residents who, who pay those utility bills. So this would require state buildings to do energy efficiency upgrades, um, which, of course, lowers the energy burden for, for all taxpayers in the state. It also creates jobs and 
These are really the types of solutions that we need to be doing if we we hope to achieve our ambitious climate goals. Well, I know in my neighborhood, you know, I know there are uh, state buildings, you know, the schools that have put up solar panels, those types of things helping to offset the, let's say, the air conditioning costs, because a lot of our classrooms are now air conditioned. You know, we already have some of those. So would this then would speed up maybe that process? Yeah, and really identifying the the even more opportunities to save. So energy efficiency is often one of those things that, you know, gets overlooked in our conversation about transitioning to 100% clean energy, but it's really important. It's the, you know, the the cheapest and quickest way to reduce our carbon emissions because the energy, you know, that we that we don't use is is the cheapest form of energy. So we we think it's important to to keep the conversation going about the power of energy efficiency to help us transition off of fossil fuels faster, and it really is, um, you know, a win-win for everyone because there's also cost savings associated with with a uh, lower carbon footprint. And so it, does that detail, let's say, you know, new construction that they have to be, you know, lead certified, that kind of thing? The bill also includes some guidelines for new state facilities. Um, so really encouraging them to maximize, um, you know, renewable energy generation on the facilities, making sure that they are uh, maximizing opportunities for energy efficiency and also water efficiency. And then there's also a provision in the bill um, for for new state buildings to look at materials that will reduce the overall carbon footprint in in the building itself, so in the concrete. So uh, really, you know, forward thinking. These these buildings are going to be in our building stock, you know, for decades to come. We really need to be building uh, for the future and not the past. And what do you think was the maybe greatest disappointment this session? Uh, what, what were the lost opportunities? What didn't advance? Well, one example, you know, on the, on the transportation side, we have a lot of work to do to decarbonize transportation and move off of fossil fuels. We're still really heavily dependent on fossil fuels to power our transportation sector. So we're we're always hoping to see, um, you know, more progress there and a, and a real real movement towards um, getting serious about reducing emissions in transportation. Um, so each year there are, you know, a number of bills that, that target transportation and there were, you know, that, that move that, that we're happy about, but we of course would want to see more in that space. So one example, there was a bill, um, SB 3158. It, it's great because it establishes a rebate program for electric bikes and electric mopeds. So thinking about, you know, not just transitioning vehicles to electric, but also you know, micromobility and other modes of transportation that are often more affordable for residents. So even electrifying those things. Yes, yeah, Senator Chrisley did talk about that um, the other day. Um, but was there anything that we didn't pass this session? So related to that bill, that bill actually started out more comprehensive than just e-bikes and e-mopeds. So it started out as a rebate program for all different types of electric vehicles, so including, you know, passenger cars. So we really would have loved to see a rebate program, especially with the budget surplus this year, for lowering the upfront costs of um, passenger electric vehicles. In addition to the bikes and the e-mopeds, those modes are absolutely important in our transportation future. But we'd like to see it go a little bit farther and really lower the upfront cost of electric vehicles for more Hawaii residents. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of people can't afford to pay $40,000 for the EVs that are out on the market now. And electric vehicles are absolutely coming down in price, I and mean, they will be, you know, cost competitive with fossil fuel vehicles. But we want to make sure that we're, you know, building for that transition and, and, and making it affordable for as many Hawaii residents as possible. And then what are you hearing out in the community? I mean, with our electric bills going up, I mean, how does that work if you have, let's say, a charger at your house? That's really going to add up. Yeah, and, and when you think about fuel costs, a lot of uh, the cost to even power a gasoline-powered vehicle is on a lot of people's mind. I think there's more awareness now of how much we're spending on transportation. So, you know, people that have you know, access to charging at home, they're fueling their vehicles, you know, from the electric grid. I think one of the things that is 
important for Blue Planet, particularly with affordability, we want to make sure that there's an adequate charging network available, you know, not just for people that live in single family homes and might be able to conveniently install a charger at their home. And then even if they have PV, you know, on their rooftop, it can be, you know, a really affordable affordable way to, to, to power their transportation needs. But so many of us in Hawaii, myself included, live in, in apartment buildings and we don't have access to EV charging at home. So, you know, I rely on the public charging network and, and really see firsthand of how much work we have to do to build out our public charging network so that more residents can take advantage of choosing an electric vehicle. And then the, the fuel cost savings that go along with that, because there are fuel cost savings. It's cheaper in the long run to, to own an electric vehicle. There's lower maintenance costs, and then there can also be fuel cost savings. So we want we want more people to have access to those options. Do you think, you know, with the fuel costs today, just because of the Ukraine situation, I mean, you think that's going to get people off the fence and go electric? I certainly think more people more people are thinking about that. And also what it underscores is this idea about energy self-sufficiency and energy independence. So whenever something, you know, happens externally and we're relying so heavily on imports, fossil fuel in this case, but, but any type of import, we, we are, are very vulnerable as, um, you know, an island community. So as we talk about transitioning to 100% clean energy, we can't forget that there's also a, a energy independence component of that. So I have to ask you about uh, Senate Bill 2510 because we've heard concerns about how very prescriptive it is on the types of green energy going forward. Yeah, what's most concerning for us is really the policy framework that it sets out and setting very prescriptive requirements and thresholds for certain types of renewable energy. So it really doesn't leave the flexibility to the PUC to balance things like grid reliability or cost, environmental concerns, the public interest. Usually that's in the purview of the PUC to balance these really you know, complicated questions. But by setting certain percentages in the bill, it's essentially shifting state policy towards just conforming to these rigid requirements rather than balancing what's in the best interest of the public and even the realities of different islands, because each island in our state has different sources of renewable energy, and it, it really should be more flexible than what's outlined in SB 2510. You know, policy is going to be a really critical lever in driving some of this larger systems change that we're seeking. We have to reduce emissions at a pace and scale that's unprecedented in human history. Individual behavior plays plays a role in that, but it it's also about this this policy framework and kind of all of us aligning on where we want to go and how we accomplish this as as fast as possible. So that's why Blue Planet does a lot of work in the policy space because we see it as a really critical lever for this larger change that we're seeking. And that was part of a conversation we had with uh, Blue Planet Foundation's Melissa Miyashiro about the progress that we're making to keep us on track to meet the state's sustainability goals by 2015. All this week, we've been taking a closer look at our green future, everything from electric vehicles to green energy options. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by assisting local food bank networks on Oahu and the neighbor islands. Matson.com. Aloha, this is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. I'm excited to be on Hawaii Public Radio for a weekly look at climate, ecological health, and environmental justice. We confront the challenges of climate disruption, but also showcase the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home, including species like Hawaii's very own Nene. Tonight at 6.30 here on HBR One. Member-supported HPR One. Streaming and more at hawaiipublicradio.org.
It's that time again, our reality check with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat. We focus today on a story about the backlog of repairs needed across our public schools. Editor Chad Blair joins us to talk about this. Hi, Chad. Uh, good morning, Catherine. I'm pitch hitting for, uh, for Cassie today, Cassie Ordonio who uh, has been covering the Board of Education, Department of Education. Guess what? She's at another board meeting today. <laughs> the, uh, one, st- one started at, uh, just a few minutes ago at 11 o'clock. There's another one at one thirty. And uh, no coincidence, the agenda for the BOE today has to do with facilities, uh, managing the assets, inspecting, and how to use federal funds. And, you know, Cassie's story today is is summed up by the headline, I'm just going to quote, we are never caught up. And that refers to the, the serious repair and maintenance backlog for the DOE. That quote comes from Catherine Payne, who is chair of the, the Board of Education. And it's rather shocking. Uh, you and I have been covering uh, Hawaii for some time now. And I guess we could say, would you agree, Catherine, that repair and maintenance at the local schools, the public schools, has always been well, it just never goes away. Yeah, and you know Catherine Payne, who was a uh, principal over at Farrington, oh, she right. know she knows firsthand, uh, you know about these issues um, because she's been in the trenches. But yes, they've been fighting this for a long time, and there was a concerted effort at one point to really try and knock back those repairs. Right, but it still persists. I, so let me just lay on you the bad news here. There's there's at least 4,600, that's 4,600 uh, repair projects on the backlog list. Uh, that's uh, at an estimated cost of about $1.4 billion. So that 4,600, that's up from just 3,800, 3,800 just a couple years ago, four years ago, uh, the legislature did appropriate about $1.2 billion. That's mostly for what we call CIP, right? Capital Improvement Projects, like outdoor learning spaces. Uh, only $256 million is going for this uh, repair and maintenance backlog. That said, I should also add that there is what we have, what we call a school facilities authority. This is something brand new that the ledge created to handle all this. And they got about $200 million, but that focus is on preschool. So a long list of problems. Representative Kyle Yamashita from Maui, who who helps uh, handle this CIP money, uh, he too echoes uh, what Catherine Payne said. It's just never enough that the legislature just can't really spend enough to keep up with the demand. Well, and Cassie's story, too, uh, talks about how um, a lot of these schools are more than 100 years old. <laughs> and I, I love this. The average age of school buildings is 72. And that that's way older than me. <laughs> One day, Catherine, you and I will be the average age of our schools. But, I mean, it is shocking. 100 years old, uh, about 20%, right, of, of schools. By the way, Hawaii has over 250. I think 257 is the actual number. That's how many public schools that we have. And it's 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 not just the schools. Uh, there's 4,400 buildings total. That's about 20 million square feet is what it adds up to. And and you mentioned the age being 72 as average. Well, one of the people that Cassie talked to was a social studies teacher at Hilo Intermediate School. That school uh, was opened in 1929, so it's almost 100 years old. And the teacher is complaining to Cassie about these tiles on the ceiling that, that are falling. Uh, and this teacher's worried about public safety. There's even a couple of photos on the story showing a bunch of that yellow construction tape, right? Uh, so it's it's really a mess. And, you know, there are different pots of money that we can access. I mean, we did some stories recently. Uh, what was Halikua, now named Daniel K. Inouye, a school, they got some money, some federal money, to deal with schools on military installations. They did a whole nationwide thing, and this was one of the worst schools. And so they got a bunch of money. I think Solomon Elementary got another pot of money because those schools are old. And, uh, you know, but it is, it is, it's a challenge. It is. Cassie did reach out to the DOE, wanted to speak to Randall Tanaka, uh, who's uh, in charge of uh, the facilities there. But he was not made available by the DOE, so we can't get their side of the story. I can share some developments that are on a positive side. A couple of years ago, uh, they did set up a database within the schools to track these projects. And they actually ranked them on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the worst, right? What's the most important? I should just let you know, what what is the... What did we see the most in terms of these projects? Well, it's roofs falling apart. The exteriors, paint peeling, windows, walls, stairs, 
uh, even ramps, and of course plumbing is always a problem. Uh, but developing these online tools, there's a few other sites as well, is making progress to at least have that stuff, if you will, readily available so we can find out and keep it up to date. Uh, and those those websites will be used going forward to try and bring down this repair and maintenance backlog. Well, you know, DOE does have a matrix and they're supposed to give priority yes, to do. certain schools, but then sometimes the process gets mucked up because lawmakers earmark special money for the schools in their yeah. district. And then that just kind of changes the picture. So it's not easy. But thanks Thank so much. Thank you, Catherine. Yes, thanks so much, Chad. That was Honolulu Civil Beat uh, Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair. To read Cassie Ordonio's full story, visit civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. HPR's community calendar is back. Got an event? Post it for free at hawaiipublicradio.org events. show, we told you about a New Englander who arrived on Hawaii Island in 1809 and went on to found a wealthy land-owning dynasty. He married the daughter of a powerful chief and became a close associate of Kamehameha I and his successors. Wild cattle were abundant on Hawaii Island in his day, and he was able to build a lucrative business selling salted beef to whaling ships that stopped at Kauai Harbor. When the great Mahele allowed private land ownership, he was quick to take advantage of the change in the law, purchasing 640 acres around um, Mana in 1850 and another 1,000 acres in 1851. He was to lease more land from King Kamehameha III until his ranch became the largest in Hawaii. Who was this empire builder we're thinking of? It was Parker Ranch founding father, John Palmer Parker, who lived from 1790 to 1866. And congrats to Masako from the Big Island. You are today's winner. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. The resurgence of live concerts across the country shows no sign of slowing down. Here in the islands, 80s music group New Kids on the Block sold out two August concerts so fast that a third was added just days after tickets went on sale. The demand has also increased the workload of booking agents, those who represent musical acts when it comes to live touring. So what's it like to be so close to the action? The conversations Russell Subiano sat down with L.A.-based booking agent Linnell Rumion. She's one of the few in the industry with Native Hawaiian ancestry. Her family has roots on Kauai. The agency she works for, Creative Artists Agency, known to many as CAA, represents A-list actors like Tom Cruise and Jennifer Lopez and music legends like Bob Dylan and Diana Ross. You work with an incredible range of well-known celebrities, including Diana Ross, Santana, New Kids on the Block, and you're part of the team that represents Christina Aguilera and The Cure. Do you feel like any of your clients have a strong connection to Hawaii, to the fans, and to the general way of life here? Yeah, I work with The Cure for Latin America because my wheelhouse is outside of the mainland. So mainly I work in Europe or South America, and I represent The Cure in South America. But I do know that Robert loves Hawaii. 
And it's kind of fun just to have those stories, you know, where he's played the island before and he had such a great time. And then also Lionel Richie was also a really fun one that we brought there as well. And he loves the islands. Many of us have a kind of a casual understanding of the business side of the entertainment industry. So we kind of know what an agent is. Is a booking agent the same thing? Can you talk about what your job entails? Yeah. So I like to think of the artist like on a wheel. (laughs) So the artist is very, very in the center of the wheel. And then you have all of these other people that are a part of it that help make up the team of what an artist does. And the manager is very much, you know, closer to the to the artists, like they're, they're their first contact and who they communicate with on how they want to strategize what they want to do with their career. And one spoke of the career is live touring. And you get into, okay, let's talk to this agent. I think we can expand your audience. Like what would be the best way to strategize to do that? And then with, you know, music distribution and all of those things come together. And we're part of the backbone that communicate with the venues and the promoters in those regions. And we come up with a strategy to best present the artist in those venues. You know, we've seen many Hawaiians and people who have grown up in Hawaii go on to have successful and visible careers in the entertainment industry. This is the first time I've talked to someone who became an agent. How did you get to where you are? A lot of it was hard work. I would say about 95% hard work and then 5% luck. So I started my real evolution of a music industry background. I went to school at the University of Texas and I was a psychology major. And then I realized I don't want to spend another four years of school after I graduated (laughs) to become, you know, with my master's or my doctorate. I was like, school's not for me, but I love going to shows and maybe I can use my empathetic side of the industry that I like about psychology into music. And I was lucky enough to get a couple of internships where back in the day where you would work for free. Yeah, right. (laughs) They're like, great. Yeah, well, you don't want to get paid? That's amazing. Okay, come work for us. (laughs) And fell into a couple of those. Now those are no longer exist anymore because it's kind of, you know, not a good thing. People get taken advantage of, overworked and stuff. Um, But I really learned a lot and I was aggressive in the fact that I was like, I do want to do more. I want to learn more about the ticketing side, the venue side. So I worked my way up and then I was like, okay, maybe Los Angeles is the place for me. And my grandpa, my Manuel Rumian, he he lived in Signal Hill in, in Long Beach. And I was so fortunate that he was like, come stay with me and like do a summer and work in the music industry or try to get what you can. And I, I got a job at the Hollywood Bowl and I sold CDs for Tower Records. <laughs> <laughs> and then during the day, I would work as, as an intern at, at a management company. And it was really fascinating. I learned more about the, the booking side because they had a lot of artists that toured. And it was really cool just to like talk to the venues and, you know, advanced shows. And there's a lot that goes into a live performance, which I worked at the bowl at night. And I was like, this isn't kind of just all fit together. And eventually came back to LA after I graduated and got a few cool gigs. I worked at the House of Blues as the box office manager and got to see some great shows. And then you know, working as an intern um, during the day at an, at an agency. And then several years later, I ended up at CAA because they were like, we are understaffed and we need to get people that know what they're doing. You know, um, some of our listeners may be familiar with that HBO TV series Entourage. How similar or how accurate of a portrayal is Entourage in your experience with CAA? Um, you know, it's funny because I think Ari Gold is such a, a iconic character. There's a lot of truth in some of those in- interactions. And the next person I see juggling, tap dancing, or baton twirling, or doing any other circus-like tricks will join him, all right? One strike policy applies. Now get back to work. Damn, that felt good. <laughs> well, the dialogue is much more well-written and scripted and everything. There are those incidences like you get into where you're trying to get somebody out of a contract or you're trying to like negotiate 
different deal structures and it can get kind of tenuous in, in those environments. And, and it is very fast paced at sometimes, but I feel like the comedic aspect is a little more scripted. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but the deals are like very very much like it can get very i don't know complicated with different people and you have mm -hmm. to learn how to like navigate your agent so it's it's fun it's a fun show and it actually i want to say the most similar that i've seen is this show on hbo max called hacks and oh. while and while this season they're like on the road uh -huh. that very much the interaction between the agent and the client, I feel like it's more realistic than, say, Entourage. You know, I know that you come from a family of entertainers. Your great aunt, Luis Rumian, was well known for being a USO entertainer. And I've read that you credit your Hawaiian heritage with determining your path and instilling the values needed to achieve success in a career that can be very competitive. Can you talk a little bit more about how your Hawaiian heritage has helped you achieve that success? Yeah. So my aunt, one of my aunts, her name was Jermina, but her stage name was Leolani, who I'm named after. She would perform at the resorts and teach the various tourists the hula mm -hmm. and to know like the Hawaiian culture. And then when I was really young, she came to Texas and she did her show in our living room. And we had, I want to say like 50 people from my family just there because a lot of them can't go to the islands. You know, we were mainland centric, but everybody wanted to see the show and she had the shells and she had the whole, whole show down. And even as a young girl seeing that and then going to Hawaii and making lays in my auntie's kitchen and like, you know, doing that for the a tourist and you know those interested know about the Hawaiian culture was so impactful for me and bringing entertainment and that was part of it it was like we're teaching through entertainment and that was yeah. so so wonderful to see as a young child and like to be in that experience and know that my aunties and uncles would perform at different places and play music and have that engagement I grew up around music my entire life. My dad, he played guitar, although I know how to play guitar. I learned very early that I'm not a performer. <laughs> I'm very much more on the business end side, and I'm really grateful that I'm able to contribute still and bring the people from outside of Hawaii, mainland performers, international performers, and come in and play and entertain all the islanders while I'm there. So, yeah. You know, I've talked to a handful of entertainers, mostly mostly movie directors or writers, and we hear on occasion how the entertainment industry is working to become more diverse and more inclusive. What have you seen in regards to what the industry is doing to become more diverse and more inclusive? Yeah, no, it's actually really great. We strive to be as inclusive as possible. It's still challenging. There's still barriers. There's still people that are very close-minded. But what really helps is just like the strength of my numbers, right? And in, in my department, there's Marlene Tucci, who is a co-head in the, in the department that I'm under. And she is Japanese, but she grew up in Los Angeles. And she is the person that I go to when it's like comes to inclusion because her roster is absolutely insane. She signs K-pop acts and she is driving on the 88 Rising Force. She loves that genre and she is putting together with other industry people to expand those audiences so it's always good to have somebody in that senior leadership position that you can go to and talk to about your challenges that you face she can be empathetic and it's like yes i've experienced the same thing this is how we're going to work around it and it's more strength in numbers i've always thought that yeah it seems like the more minorities that get into these industries the more that we can do to bring more minorities in and to include more people that that have been marginalized in the past seems like that's one good way to continue to expand the industry's inclusion of yeah. a lot of different kinds of peoples and stories yeah that's the community that we, we try to strive you know going into it in the entertainment community there are plenty of young, talented people in Hawaii that have these dreams of being a professional entertainer. What would you say to those young people who have that dream or have that talent, but are just kind of discouraged by the obstacles or barriers that they see to achieving that career path? What would you say to them? 
Yeah, I've faced a lot of challenges being rejected from jobs or not getting the client that I was really trying to go after. The only thing I can tell you is that learn from your mistakes and that you need to be patient. Because if I told myself 20 years ago when I started, you need to be patient and just wait, things will eventually work itself out. I think I would have saved like five years of a side hustle of my of my career, like my trajectory. Like I think I would have gotten where I was a little bit quicker, right? And instead of like rushing everything and making it like need to be now and instant gratification, just learn from your experience, take your time and create a good social circle that you would want to be at. It's okay to have friends, but you should always maintain a social circle where it's like you want to strive to be better and those people make you better instead of having the same roundabout circle of friends that are just going to be in the same level. It's like, no, 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 I want to I want to be like this person in five years. That's what I'm emulating. And that, that, that'll help you kind of maintain your goals and your standards of what's the next step? Where should I go next? And they would also be that person to be like, well, this is what I think you should do and get to that next level. Thank you so much for your time, Linnell. Oh, thank you so much for this. I appreciate it, Russell. That was booking agent Linnell Rumion talking with HPR's Russell Sobiono about what young local entertainers can do to achieve steady and sustained success in the industry. That is it for us today. Up tomorrow, we have an Aloha Friday show lineup with stories highlighting culture and arts. Call our talkback line. Uh, give us feedback or ideas. 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 